I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello guys and girls, the program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Santosh here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Now, Santosh, I was having a real difficult time trying to decide what to talk about this week because I didn't, I wanted to give everybody a little break from Corona. And so uh, yeah. <laughs> I figured it'd be a good time to talk about a different disease for a change. Uh, sure. You know, maybe one that isn't so transmissible and killery, something like that? Or like, do you want to get like lighthearted? And I figured rather than focus on the present day, let's go back and hang out in, in history. Let's deal with a historical disease. I settled on the namesake of everybody's favorite series, Around the World oh, in Plagues. <laughs> Oh, I forgot to turn down the mic again. This week, the plague <laughs> yeah. is bubonic. <laughs> sure. Too soon? Sure. Is, it too, no, is it too soon to talk about bubonic plague? Well, I, I, as like from the 1800s? No, I think it's been enough. You know, the, sure. There have been three great plague pandemics in human history, or at least three great plague pandemics caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. There were other plagues, so to speak. You know, there was Spanish flu, and that killed just a ton of people. And there have been other pandemics and outbreaks. And of course, who can forget Bieber fever? I think I still kind of have Bieber fever. You know, if we wanted to be lighthearted about this, we could just like switch this whole 80 plagues to Bieber fever. We'll stick with the boobos. Okay, got it. All right. All right, that's fair. The first began, the first great plague pandemic was back all the way in AD, the year 541, lasted on and off for two centuries and was called Mm -hmm. the Justinian Plague. So this wasn't really the type of plague that we think about where you just got this massive peak of deaths and then it tails off and, you know, it, it kind of goes away. This was a smoldering, you know, ongoing type of disease. I don't know that I would call it a plague per se, because it was part of like daily life. (laughs) The second big wave is the one that we're probably going to focus on a little more. uh, The Black Death, which spread initially from Asia to Italy around 1346. And again, had little mini waves, uh, bumps for about 400 years, infecting so much of the European population uh, with devast- you know, that it came to be called the Great Mortality, because over that time, 50 million people died on a continent inhabited by 80 million. Not quite two-thirds. Yeah, I got five-eighths. But Im- imagine just 
you know, you, maybe you got eight people in a house, right? Because you've got a bunch of kids and things like that. And then you look around and there are three. Uh, this was so sharp and so crazy. The, the plague of Justinian, yes, it, it went across the Byzantine Empire, 541 to 542, and then it kept sputtering and sputtering. But this second wave, Josh, um, like 1347 to 1351. Well, 1346 and went... Yeah on and off for about 400 years. But yeah, that first that yeah. tender to it was uh, 1346 to about oh, maybe 1350. Right. And this is, uh, think about this right now, right? We're already sick and tired of staying home. It's been a couple of months. Imagine having to disperse a disease which lasted uh, I don't know, the better part of four years. And then imagine it lasting 400 years. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then it, you know, it keeps peaking up and it keeps like every time you turn around, uh, unlike what's going on now where, okay, you get this thing and a high chance of, even if you get sick, you're going to be okay, blah, blah, blah. But this other disease, there's no telling why it's there, how it's there because of our understanding of things. But then you can just up and catch this thing and die people are going to be scared to come near you to help you that's insane the first of our plague fun facts da -da 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 -da. in <laughs> in 1348 you know we part of the reason this kept smoldering is people had to invent public health measures from scratch in 1348 the city of venice was the very first to enforce an official quarantine in hopes of curbing incoming transmission of the bubonic plague. Any travelers who entered via ports or city gates had to stay in isolation for quaranta dias, from whence we derive the word quarantine, 40 days. 40 days. So that's a month and 10 days that you're not moving. You're, you're, you're in a small, tiny little place with other people, by the way, in a small, tiny little place. And... If you didn't know about it, but you still, you like, you really needed to get into Venice, you just shrug, okay, I guess I'm sitting in this cell for a while. Or you'd be sitting off on your ship on the docks waiting to unload. So, you know, Carnival Cruises also took a working model from somewhere. No. <laughs> oh, those are Inspirations the <laughs> all around. Yeah. <laughs> Now, even though a lot of us kind of, I know what you're thinking when you hear the Black Plague, you're probably picturing the plague doctor with that big bird looking mask that does seem like a Venice carnival mask. And those weren't really around in the early 1300s. They weren't even invented. And we'll get to that more. They weren't even invented until the late 15, 1600s. Now, the third wave of the plague pandemic started in 1850s China. And rather than following the path of the Justinian one over to Europe, it actually went back the other direction and spread across, spread across Asia with such incredible ferocity that India alone lost 20 million people. One, one small area of land. It's still, you know, very heavily populated at that time. I want to put this into some kind of a perspective. I don't know how, Josh. We have suffered modern pandemics and plagues, right? People know about H1N1 is the most recent one. We had the SARS scare, you know, a decade ago we had MERS, which was very local, but it was, you know, that was a local epidemic. I I don't know that people can recognize in the times of crowded cities when you know, we kind of lived on top of each other and really didn't have a, a very good idea about why things passed around. Um, and we certainly didn't have any antibiotics. And just as you said, we were inventing public health. We were trying to figure out, okay, there's this thing which seems to move through humanity. I'm not sure how, but let's see if we can stop it from moving, I don't know, by touch, by separating people. I, I don't know, but let's try. And you have all this going on. And so the bacteria, you know, is able to propagate and kill off 50 to 60 to 70% of people in a go. This is already when we had to deal with like everything else. <laughs> you know, you could still die from like pneumonia 
or tuberculosis <laughs> or any one of uh, or you like know, 100 things. into a table and scratching your leg because antibiotics were not a thing back then. Right. Uh, so I, I don't know in modern times if I'd be able to really put into a scope of what it would be like to live around a time like this where there was a decent chance that you would come down with something that everybody else was getting and that you'd just be wiped out. Well, after this uh, Chinese pandemic in the 1850s, they let the curve, you know, start to simmer down a little. And somewhere around the 1890s, 40 years later, a team of European scientists was sent to Hong Kong to study the epidemic. Only seven years after that, a French bacteriologist, Alexander Yersin, isolated the bacteria that caused the disease. And in 1897, it was named in his honor, Yersinia pestis, the Yersin <laughs> <Yay>! plague. <laughs> it's kind of the fear and the desire of all microbiologists that you're going to be like permanently associated with a disease. Just like, yeah, it's like, you know, every time someone talks about you, like they're talking about some horrible thing, I guess that's a legacy of sorts, huh? Yeah, I mean, there's always that would you rather have the disease or the cure named after you? Because one's going to be remembered a lot longer. Yeah, that's but true. Only... Like, you know, if it's the Salk vaccine, you know, that's, that's, you know, it's so cool. <laughs> and most people are like, Salk what now? <laughs> Polio um, people, polio, polio. <laughs> but only a year after, in 1898, Paul Louis Simond found out that the mechanism by which this bacteria transferred was fleas, and that fleas were transported around the world on ships by black rats. Then from there, it kind of spread from city rats to urban rats, and or to uh, rural rats. And we'll, we'll get a little bit more into this later. Since the invention of antibiotics, the threat of a fourth pneumonic plague, and specifically this Yersinia pestis plague, has really kind of dissipated. But it's still a scary thing. And even as late as 2000 to 2000, 2010 to 2015, there were still about 3,000 cases worldwide. And since 1990, Madagascar has suffered outbreaks of plague, both bubonic and pneumonic, every year. We've had a flu season. Madagascar has bubonic plague season. That's kind of awful. Of course, nowadays, it's much better in terms of being able to recognize it. We know what it is, and we have adequate treatment. Plague was first introduced into the United States only a few years after we discovered its mode of transmission in 1900 by rat-infested steamships coming from affected areas, which <laughs> mostly at that time were from Asia. Uh, yeah. So there were a lot of epidemics in port cities, but the last one in a city in the U.S. was probably in the early 20s, 1924 to 1925. Then it went from urban rats to rural rats, and from rural rats somehow to armadillos. I'm not entirely certain how <laughs> it jumped in the American Southwest into the uh, the armored pokey rat, but it well, did. <laughs> so this is a, just a quality of this particular bacteria. It's actually quite successful as a pathogen. Uh, I know that's not a very good word to use, you know, as a human that's vulnerable to this thing. But as an ecologist and as a microbiologist, when we say it's successful, that means that it's able to spread and live uh, in many different types of ways. So this is a zoonotic disease. Um, it's flea-borne transmitted, and it can go from rodent to human. But really, a lot of animals in the family Rodentia, um, including, and I, I know Josh will talk about this, you know, coming up, but like, you know, ground squirrels and groundhogs and, you know, all these kind of things, they can pick this up and harbor plague as well. And then if you have fleas moving between those animals that can bite and transmit the plague, then it will propagate. How oddly specific. Yeah. <laughs> um, when it first showed up 
and through all those three previous plagues. How bad was this disease? Very, very bad. Yeah. About, you know, as you mentioned, Sanchez, about two thirds of people died within about, oh, I don't know, three or four days of developing symptoms. Yeah. Uh, just, just a wipeout rate. This is one of the things that, if we hadn't figured it out, uh, can absolutely just knock out an entire species. We, like, the earth could have been done with humanity, <laughs> at least, you know, over a continent. Uh, well, if we had that not. brings us to plague fun fact number two. <laughs> <Da-da-da-da>. <laughs> Fun fact, what's the matter with you? <laughs> okay, bear with me because it's going to start dark, but then get really neat. <laughs> oh, God. All right, go ahead. <laughs> so we didn't get antibiotics for the, for the Black Plague until about the 20th century. So without antibiotics, the mortality rate for an infected victim was about 72%. However, a small number of people were naturally resistant to bubonic plague due to an unusual protein structure that the bacteria's enzymes just could not interact with. And the protein structure was tied to a very specific gene. Mm. Before the 1340s, only about 0.2% of the European population had this gene, and that's based on examining DNA from their remains. Those 0.2% of people who were immune back in the 1300s survived the genetic bottleneck, passed their immunity on to their modern descendants. So today, if you are a Caucasian person, the odds are about 15% of you have inherited this gene. Wow. That is genetics at work creating real-life mutants with the power to resist plague. We're all X-Men! Woo! (laughs) Well, yeah, we didn't have a leap in mutation. We literally succumbed to evolutionary pressure, to selection pressure. There's no difference between what happened here on a human scale versus what I do when I try to isolate a particular plasmid in a vial of bacteria that I have, and I give that bacteria a resistance gene where the bacteria that do not have my plasmid with the resistance gene just get wiped out, and the frequency of the gene that I want to transmit goes from something like, you know, exactly 0.1% or something like that, all the way up to like close to 100% so that, you know, I can later on, unfortunately, brutally kill all of those bacteria and harvest the DNA. But (laughs) this is real life selection pressure, evolution in action. This is one of the things that you can look at where people are like, oh, there's evidence for evolution. Well, here it is. You know, humans are evolving right now. So with that said, why don't we talk about the three forms of plague. Now, we're going to talk about bubonic for the most part because it's the most distinct in terms of physical findings, even though it is the least dangerous of the three forms. So when we're differentiating these types of plague, um, these aren't differences in, uh, in plague in terms of the bacteria, uh, although there probably were genetic differences in the strains of bacteria that went around, you know, it's mutating as it moves, um, nor in, you know, the, the eras per se. These forms of plague can all happen at the same time. But uh, yeah, we're, we're talking about kind of the stages that the plague can present as or go through. So the first is bubonic, which is the most common, about 80% of plague cases uh, around the world outside of Madagascar. And certainly the vast majority in the US are bubonic. And it takes its name from these infected lymph nodes that are called bubos, like uh, the character from The Hobbit, Bubo Baggins. No, no, that's Bilbo. Cut it out. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> The, the these these things by the way they're absolutely gross so you've got you know the swelling of the lymph node it is like the filthy hobbits is bubo no. beckins uh, <laughs> stop it 
Bill, Bill, Bill Bilbo Baggins <laughs> was not like a pocket full of pus. He was a very brave and weird little hobbit who later on tried to become evil, but was saved by Frodo So and, and Gandalf. These would appear at an area very near the flea bite. So if the bite was on a leg, a booba would appear in the groin. If the bite's on the arm, the booba could appear in the underarm or the neck. Uh, yeah, the the little bacteria were being picked up, actually picked up by our own cells and then transmitted, shuttled to our lymph nodes. And so that's what where you'd see the swelling is you'd, you'd see this big lymph node popping up. And about two to so about two to six days after the bite. So that's the incubation period where it needs time to build up its martial its forces. People would develop fever, chills, muscle aches, weakness, and then 24 hours after that, one or more buboes start to appear. Uh, now, in modern day, with prompt antibiotic treatment, over 90% of people will survive this. But without that treatment, you could advance to the next form of plague and upgrade your plaguey Pokemon to <laughs> Septicemic. <laughs> It's often the next step of, uh, of plague where you have the buboes. You, you basically have lymph nodes full of bacteria. They're replicating, they're replicating. And then your lymph nodes, your lymphatics can't contain them anymore. And then they're able to spread out into your bloodstream. And now you have something that looks a lot like sepsis. You look like you're rapidly dying. I will say, Josh, about 10 to 20% of cases, um, there would be no buboes. You know, people would get bitten, the bacteria would get into the bloodstream, and they'd go straight into septic plague. Now, in these people with septic plague, you see a coagulation cascade or problems with blood clotting. So these people get severe bleeding problems that include sudden bleeding under the skin with scattered bruises that can darken into, you know, more bubo-looking things, what you're at least partially thinking of, even though they're not true buboes, as well as blood in the urine, bleeding from the mouth, and really every orifice, which can be followed by shock. Again, with appropriate, timely treatment, about 75% of people can still survive. Not quite as many as can survive the bubonic form only, but there's still a pretty good response to treatment. However, in some you'll see a full-on infection with the rarest form, the most advanced and the deadliest form of the plague, the pneumonic. Yeah, and that that's not like, oh, you know, we need to remember a clever rhyme to, you know, think about the plague. Although, you know, we have one of those, which is Ring Around the Rosie, um, which is creepy. It's creepy that we teach that to kids and it's about the black death. But yeah, mnemonic in this case means pneumo, which is the root word for lungs. And it's what happens when the bacteria make it from the bloodstream into the lungs or even just get into the lungs directly and cause pneumonia. And plague can be transmitted in droplets, very similar to, well, another pandemic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, when you s sneeze and cough, if you have pneumonic plague, then the, we, we have, you know, droplets, which are big, big, heavy particles. So that when you cough and sneeze, they can travel about anywhere from about two to four meters. And then they're heavy enough in the air that they drop to the ground. So that those are called droplets versus airborne, where the particles are so small that they can just travel on the wind for sometimes kilometers. So tuberculosis is an airborne type of pathogen. When those people are coughing and sneezing, they can cough and fill like a big old room full of TB. Whereas, uh, you know, if you have pneumonic plague, then people are going to infect people kind of immediately surrounding them by, you know, coughing up these little droplets, little, these little packet bombs of bacilli. So, Santosh, what what makes the Yersinia pestis pathogen so gosh darn effective? Like, what's its structure? How does it work? All right. I get excited about this stuff. I'm sorry. I know that this thing is a killer. But you have to understand that we're all life on this planet. And, you know, we've all 
we're all descendants and kind of relatives of each other, which means that ultimately every form of life is attempting to propagate. You know, it's trying to reproduce and then move on and survive. And so if you look at it in that way, they're not trying to necessarily quote unquote cause disease. They're just trying to survive. That being said, there's some really cool mechanisms that have come up. So uh, pestis, the one that we're talking about, Josh, uh, the, the, the plague, actually came originally from pseudotuberculosis, which is another Yersinia that you and I are familiar with, causes this thing called you know, pseudoappendicitis. It's in the gut, right? And it can cause this colitis, which is really awful. So we can actually trace the lineage to pseudotuberculosis. Yersinia pestis grabbed up some two, some unique plasmids, and then it actually shut down the genes that were important for pseudotuberculosis to live in the intestines. So Yersinia pestis, even though it's a descendant of pseudotuberculosis, can't live in the gut anymore. I'm giving this thing a personality, although it doesn't really have a personality. <laughs> um, but if it did, it would yeah. sound like this. <laughs> I'm not going to talk like that. <laughs> if you're a vector-borne bacteria or pathogen, you have to find a way to get on board your vector. In this case, it's the flea. You have to find a way to stick around and propagate somehow in that vector, in that arthropod. And then you you should ideally force this arthropod to want to feed. All right. And so we've talked about this, I think, in malaria, where malaria actually messes with the mosquito and makes it more hungry and that kind of a thing. This thing, there is a classic mechanism called a blocked flea model, Josh. And what it does is it creates a blockage of the flea in the intestine of the flea. And then the flea can't eat. So it's super hungry. So they aggressively try to feed because they can't swallow and get the blood down into their gut they puke <laughs> they 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 throw up the the little bacilli the pestis into the wound where their blood sucks with every feed attempt so there is this mechanical transmission where you know you got this blocked flea kind of thing this was a classic model that we had and um we we still know that even if you don't block up the flea that the flea will transmit it it'll go around it gives it a little flea heartburn like a you know type of thing after it eats the reflux is triggered by ingestion of blood from rats or guinea pigs, but not mice or gerbils, which is interesting. So Yersinia propagates really well in rodents. If it gets into a human, we are actually an accidental host, okay? Whoops, well, there goes two-thirds of Europe's population. Well, well, the issue is, here's the, here's the biggest problem. The fleas can't, they can't draw up as much Yersinia from our blood, okay, as they can from the rat. They don't seem to be able to have that thing where they reflux up you know, enough uh, Yersinia when they do that. So Yersinia really can't propagate well, you know, if you go fleas between humans. It'll do it okay, but not as well as rats. So really, it's not good to be there. And then it has to wait on this really inefficient method of transmission, which is to get to the lungs and cause pneumonic plague. So the first thing it'll do is the organisms invade, they get carried via the lymphatics to the regional lymph nodes. You get the inflammatory reaction, you have a bubo. Then it gets into our macrophages. The macrophages are the big eaters, right? They try to chew up the bacteria, but they can survive in there. So they've got this, uh, Josh, it's called the outer protein J. What a coincidence. That's my rap name. <laughs> so outer protein J actually it hides in the macrophages the macrophages take it to the lymph node and then it secretes outer protein J and destroys the macrophage so it basically trojan horses in all right now it's in the lymph node it overspills the lymph node it can get into the circulation into the bloodstream and now it can make those little necrotic or those dead foci everywhere in the body which look like those mini black Bubos, um, and that's the uh, you know the plague where you have those patches of skin falling off. Sometimes you know you'll get necrotic lesions in the limbs and things like that. A whole hand will fall off, but you will continue to see the propagation in the bloodstream if you don't give antibiotics at this point, where your cilia will just multiply and multiply and multiply. 
And then at this point, either overwhelming sepsis, and you're going to kill the organism, the, the host, in this case, the human, or you're going to get to the lungs and then spread and then kill the human. All it's trying to do is propagate, and trying to propagate in one organism is no good. So it's got to get to a high enough level in the bloodstream and in the lungs to be able to get to other hosts and propagate out like that. So here's the big thing, Josh, and it's a lot like, you know, we're going to talk about this soon, uh, you know, what what it means for us from a public health standpoint. If you have one host there, right, and even if they get to mnemonic plague where they're coughing and, you know, coughing up droplets, there's not enough people close by that the flea is going to come in and bite the infected human and go to somebody else. And that person's not going to be able to cough and transmit Yersinia so you can potentially, in a plague of one, you can isolate the plague right there and end it, uh, which is why, you know, getting people apart from each other is actually really, really important. And in case you doubted, do you know who one of the first people to help suggest staying apart and uh, in general, removing infected corpses, getting fresh air? and staying apart from each other, as a treatment was. <laughs> Removing infected corpses. Yep. <laughs> Dude, I want everybody to take a second right now. It was, there was so much corpses that it would be a luxury, a luxury to live far away from corpses. You know, the fact that like you had to take away the corpse was not even a thought because there was just so many. Bring out shit dead. Yeah. <laughs> and you were in a city behind city walls. So in order to get them out, you'd have to drag them out past the city walls and, and find a place to dump them. And then, you know, people knew that your disease was coming from the from the, the bodies, the rotting bodies. So who would pick those up and drag those out? So it was just one of those things that you just like pass by a mound of dead bodies and people were like, oh, I guess that, you know, the dead bodies are just going to be there. And it took someone to actually say, we got to get the dead bodies out of here. <laughs> and do you know who one of those people was? Nostradamus. No, no. Nostradamus? Like the, the... the... Yes, that Nostradamus. <laughs> The one who we all associate with making fantastical predictions on the History Channel about aliens and the end of the world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, was a plague doctor because he gave some of this advice, uh, staying, including removal of infected corpses, getting fresh air, drinking clean water, and only later kind of went down the almanac and prediction route. Uh, and yeah. plague doctors were really important uh in those 1600s, but not for the reasons you think. Uh, now, I will tell you that suit you're thinking of with the bird beak and the top hat and all of those was invented by Charles Delorme in 1630 and were very, uh, who was the personal physician to Louis XIV. The suit had several different elements. The hat was just worn on the plague doctor's head because it was made of leather and meant to indicate that its wearer was a doctor. That's just doctors wore hats back then. Then Got you it. had a mask which had a pouch. The reason it had that bird beak was because they believed in this theory of miasma or bad air. So mm -hmm. these were early gas masks where you had a long beak-shaped opening that had two small openings near the front far from your face and any miasma or bad air that got in through that would have to be filtered through little oils and perfumes and pouches that would remove all the bad scents. So it was really to just kind of put as much distance between the air and your face, not to intentionally look like a bird. <laughs> and then, you know, this is, you know, ring around the rosy, right? That's the rash, you know, ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, if you weren't a doctor and you couldn't afford, you know, or, or have one of these masks on and carry the sweet smelling stuff stuffed into the beak, you could fill your pocket full of potpourri and maybe that would keep the bad smell away. Josh, I think this is so cool because, dude, they were so close already to understanding germ theory 
you know, this this idea that it, it's coming from a microorganism, but they knew it was it was passable and transmissible from person to person via the air. And I, you know, if, if the mask had enough of, um, you know, if it had some protection against droplet, right? Just well, because here's the other droplet protection. That mask yeah, was yeah. actually tucked into the suit. The neckline of the overcoat was tucked oh, behind the plague doctor's mask, extended yeah, yeah. all the way down to the feet, and the whole leather overcoat was coated with suet, which was based on the idea that it would either repel the plague from the doctor or that yeah. it kept bodily fluids from sticking to the coat. Now, brilliant. So they were worried about, you know, contact precautions also. They were worried about that, you know, this would come from body fluid. Now, interestingly, I'm almost certain that, you know, if you take a fatty substance and put it over leather and cover every inch of yourself, you're probably going to be protected from the fleas too when you go out. Or delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Don't lick the plague suit, Josh. Finally, a wooden cane was carried by many plague doctors, which is a tool to serve a variety of functions that could be to examine a patient without touching them, to indicate to helpers or the family of a victim how and where to move the patient, like over there onto that dead cart, or in defense against the assault of desperate patients. Because most of these, we again, we didn't really have treatments. So what were these plague doctors doing? Well, they were public servants hired by villages, towns, or cities. And most of them, while they would try and treat and cure victims of the plague, they would also be there to bury the dead, tally the number of casualties and logbooks for public record, and document the last wishes of patients, as well as testify and witness wills of the dead and dying. Uh, many of them were even requested to conduct autopsies and granted special dispensation by the church, because remember, the body was sacred at this time. Mm -hmm. So to be allowed yeah, to yeah. examine it, these doctors were uh, allowed to conduct autopsies in order to better understand how the plague might be treated, to the point that occasionally plague doctors would be kidnapped by groups of bandits and ransomed <laughs> and ransomed back to the cities in order to continue their jobs. Dude, that's so insane. So amidst, amidst all of this, you know, that you're, that we're talking about here, they were epidemiologists because they were keeping numbers and granted they were really looking at one type of axis, which was, you know, the, the mortality, which is much different from looking at also the, you know, the long-term morbidity, which we also worry about nowadays. But you know, if you also had, you know, all this knowledge, this intimate knowledge of the, the diseases and how they were going on, these were also some of the first authors, the descriptors that would describe what the clinical course of disease looked like. So that rather than depending on your own description of the disease, like your experience, you could actually uh, look at these these little case series, essentially, they, which they were before they were ever called that, where you could see what most patients went like, what some patients went like. These were the people who actually compiled, you know, that, oh, you know, most people don't go on to have pneumonic disease, that, you know, a, a ton of people will have buboes. There are some people who get really sick and die quickly without getting buboes. Um, and, and so we had our very first, well, not our very first, but our early descriptions of medical literature, truly medical literature. Now, remember, all these are kind of taking place during waves of the second plague, the, the Black Death, not the Justinian Plague, and long before the plague in Asia. And of the 18 doctors in Venice, remember I told you that 1346 to 1348? Of 18 doctors in Venice documented at the beginning of the plague, only one was left by 1348. Five had died, and wow. 12 were missing and unaccounted for, unknown if they were dead or fled. I mean, that's basically the public health advice was go far, stay away, come back slowly. Right. And maybe they weren't thinking about it. Uh, you know, they, they weren't actively saying that, oh, this is a, a model or a statistical model for suppressing the propagation of a bacteria, but just 
kind of intuitively, but even much more so by observation and trial and error, they were figuring out that spacing was really, really important to stop propagation of this disease. Now, we're talking about those would be the equivalent of our frontline workers, but what was life like for people in quarantine during this time? I mean, it's something that now we're all going to be thinking about, right? How the heck did people amuse themselves before internet and internet and Netflix? (laughs) And internet. No. Well, okay. So you and I, Josh, pre-internet, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, we weren't pre-internet for very, very long, but we were definitely pre-internet. Uh, I don't know. I feel had... like 20 years is a pretty decent amount of time. It's it's pretty good, but we weren't adults during that time, right? We we were young people and we were kids. Uh, you know, I, I can tell you my kids and seeing kids, they don't stay bored for very long, even if you take their electronics away. Little kids will make play out of anything and it's pretty amazing and it's also what you know keeps me really lighthearted throughout you know some scary times like this but older people yeah you know we we had books you know those of us who enjoyed playing books and those kind of a thing and we we had computers at least even if they weren't connected to the internet so we had computer games but yeah not only during the plague, but during other times as well, is how did people amuse themselves? And did that distraction work for long stretches of time where you had to stay sequestered away from lots of people so that you wouldn't die? (laughs) Just because there was no internet didn't mean there were no bloggers. Uh, Wait, what? One of the most famous accounts of life during a plague comes from a British naval officer in 1666, Samuel Pepys. And there were no Zoom meetings, no ventilators, no drive-through testing in 17th century London. But Pepys' diary, which he kept daily throughout the entire plague, reveals that there were some pretty striking resemblances. Um, You know... And unlike, here's one of the differences. Plague was, as you mentioned, a regular part of modern life. So there was no way of knowing whether an outbreak of plague that popped up would stick around for a week, a month, several years. So when it first appeared outside the city walls of St. Giles, outside, outside in St. Giles, outside the city walls of London, mm-hmm. in late 1664, there was nobody who thought it would become an epidemic. It only <laughs> it only showed up in his diary on April 30th, 1665, for the first time almost four to five months uh, after we have documentation of early cases. And he says, great fear of the sickness here in the city, it being said that two or three houses are already boarded up, God preserve us all. And then he continued to just live his life until around June, a few months later, when he began to see houses shut up and marked with a red cross on the doors, Mm -hmm. uh, which incidentally, red cross, you know, going out to help people around the world, symbolic. Uh, He (laughs) soon, you know, continued to document things like corpses being taken to burial in the streets. Um, Friends and acquaintances, including his own doctor, were dying. By mid-August, he was writing up his will and tracking mortality counts, becoming the same armchair epidemiologist that all the rest of people were. And by mid-September, all attempts to control the plague were failing. Quarantines were not being enforced. And he writes about people gathering in places like the Royal Exchange and in local parks, you know, not social distancing. He was even alarmed by people attending funerals, wedding, and church services in spite of official orders. Wow. So you you like already early on you had like idiots going against common sense kind of thing. Yeah, so and it got to the point so the first remedy that peeps sought during the plague outbreak was tobacco because again we're talking about this driving out miasma or bad air. Uh later he was given a bottle of plague water or posy, medicine made from various herbs, but he wasn't sure whether any of this was effective. You know, he could only and he even says he's like, you know, here's all the things that people are doing, but 
All we know is that some say one thing, some another. Um, he constantly mentioned he was trying to be in good spirits because the medical theory of the era was if you have an imbalance of your humors, you're going to get sick. So if you get too depressed, you literally might die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you'd have a, you know, a, a buildup of black bile and these kind of things. Uh, we still use some of this nowadays. We now we know that, uh, you know, keeping up good spirits and, you know, community and that kind of thing that actually really are important to overall health. But th this was a time when people were trying to still, hey, listen, d did you know that blood circulates yeah. <laughs> and then people are, oh, you, you crazy person. What are you talking about? Kind of thing. There was, of yeah. course, an economic impact. Uh, Peeps mentioned in his diary that, you know, he was afraid to go out and buy a wig, which was fashionable at the time, and that he yeah. didn't think anyone else would be buying wigs either because nobody knew if the wigs were made from the hair of plague victims that was cheap and readily available and looted from the dead. Yeah. And, you know, not too much to worry about. As long as there wasn't um, probably blood in there, um, or or if there weren't any fleas nesting in the actual hair, um, fleas are oh god, I friggin' hate fleas. Um, we've got the body louse. You know, body louse is a scary thing um, because it can it can propagate disease as well. I talked about typhus and rickettsia and these kind of a thing, um, horrible diseases. But the problem with that is that the louse needs to feed very, very often to live. The flea can stick around in things like tall grass or, you know, fake wigs or something for a while and just kind of go dormant until it smells, you know, a host for a while. So you really, you do have to worry you know, if you're flea-borne illnesses like the plague, you got to really make sure that the vector is gone. So, you know, he, he was undergoing the same flatten the curve, keep yourself amused, and he was doing it by spending time with his family, writing daily in his journal, uh, musing, kind of going out briefly into the world, limiting his contacts. Of course, like everybody else, he started to get a little bit stir-crazy. So by early October, he writes about breaking the quarantine to visit his mistress without oh, any regard God. for the danger. Roundabout, oh, roundabout and next door on every side of me is the plague, but I did not value it lest I there did with what I could, con Ella. Um, <laughs> Ella Ella's the girl? Yes, I, I believe. Or maybe it's just they switched over into writing in Latin from English. Uh, so... <laughs> And and all of this was because the curve had started to flatten, the first decline in deaths in mid-September. So, you know, Peeps was able to hang out through the whole thing, and you can actually find his entire. It's one. Of, it's a really great book to read right now to see how somebody dealt with this. You know, four or five hundred years ago. Yeah. Uh, in a similar situation, so pick it up at your local library. Um, okay. Uh, what and what is it? Uh, Samuel Peeps. The diary. The Diary of Samuel Peeps, or Peppies, P-E-P-Y-S. So is it Peeps or Peppis? It's pronounced Peeps. It's spelled okay. Peppis. No, really? Ask a British person, man. I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is wild. What do you no, want I... from me? I throw all this great information at you, and you ask me about pronunciation of a I'm name? So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I... <laughs> all right. So... You know, he, he's a bit eccentric and he's like a little insane, but at the same time, he's kind of innovative and he's thinking of things in the same mindset of what a public health uh, officer or a uh, epidemiologist would be thinking of right now. I want to point out something here that n the plague doctors at that time missed and uh peeps missed even though they they had their eyes open but they were missing this and it was because good statistical method had not yet entered medical practice math at this time was already an integral part uh you know pun intended it was an integral part of physics um of chemistry it well was really, most really of math and physics and chemistry were invented during this time newton newton came up with calculus while on quarantine because university was closed. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, calculus, he, like he was bored out of his mind. And so he, he like, just invented <laughs> math. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, of course, and, and we shouldn't forget his homie Leibniz, who likewise, you know, came up with the same thing, you know, over the course of the plague. Um, very, very integral. But it's an application into medicine, which nowadays is absolutely essential statistical method when we're doing clinical medicine or epidemiology, you know, all the way to mathematical modeling um, when we're talking about uh, how the plague spreads and moves around, this kind of a thing. The one thing they really didn't catch here was this function of exponential growth. The fact that if you're starting to see the growth of something in small numbers, but the rate of doubling or the rate of increase is steep, that you have to be on point really, really, really early on. Otherwise, even before you can blink, that rate of doubling is going to cause so much prevalence that it's you're going to be way behind, way too far behind to act. And you know, I'm sad to say, Josh, that, you know, even though modern epidemiology and modern statistical method, there's a handful of people that really grasp this well. And these are the people who, you know, when you start to see propagation of something like a modern disease like COVID, and you say, hey, you got to move now, you got to move now while things are small and contained. Um, unfortunately, this is still a really difficult concept to pass on to uh you know the the rest of us and make us realize what's going on and that's because if you do it right it feels like an overreaction because people because people don't get it that's the whole point (laughs) and by the way on and this is going to be really important for all of our listeners who are listening in real time during the pandemic but it it goes both ways of the curve right? So you have to overkill on the front end if you want to suppress things. But if you are too late and you're, you're going through the peak of the curve and the curve is finally coming down, you have to overkill on the tail, on the other side of the curve as well, and really mash down the incidence and the prevalence of disease and morbidity before you start to return you know, to kind of normal activity and that kind of a thing. Now, I'm going to, before I talk very briefly about the social after effects, I'm going to mention one other thing that only briefly came up in Peep's diary, but that I really had to dive into because it was hilarious. You know, now he didn't think anybody would ever see this diary. So that's probably why it was filled with a lot of descriptions, but it's one <laughs> of the best records. And honestly, I encourage everybody, go ahead and keep a plague diary. Uh, who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> when it might come in handy to future generations. <laughs> Keep no. a plague diary. No, no. It's, but it's, you're it's, absolutely right. It's the yeah. reason we know what life was like during that time because he wrote about modern, mundane data, not the rise and fall of countries, but mundane things like people were worried about wearing wigs because they might come from this. Like these are the prejudices and concerns of the time. And in fact, yeah. one of those things that came up, remember, we said miasma or a deadly air vapor spreading through so doctors felt if a patient could dilute the polluted air with something equally potent and smelling it might reduce the chance of contracting the illness so doctors stuck with you know scented oils and bags of potpourri Uh, other people would buy a goat and just let it hang in their house and stink up the place you know there's too much goat smell others took to the practice of farting into a jar and quickly sealing it, then if they encountered a exposure to what they felt might be deadly germs, they would quickly open their jar and inhale it. Look it uh, up. Fart jars were used yeah. as a conceived treatment for the plague. This ties in, right? Because malaria is bad air. That's what it was. They, you know, way before anybody knew that it was mosquito transmitted. If you went to a certain area where the mal air, area. yeah, yeah, <laughs> if you went to a mal area uh, along the Mediterranean in Europe and sub-Saharan Africa, uh, this was in the old world, of course, before this disease moved west. But if if you went to a place with bad air, you would contract this thing, and you know, 
they, they weren't making the association that like, hey, you know, by the way, there's a shit ton of mosquitoes here and they're buzzing around and that kind of a thing. But I I love the thinking because the the idea that like, hey, this is moving around from person to person. It's in the air. It's it's around even when people aren't around. There are still people who are getting sick. They didn't they didn't see the fleas or they didn't catch the fleas. Flea bites are notoriously not painful, not itchy. So, you know, they were still they were trying to track down where could this possibly be coming from. Um, I'm seriously I I'm trying to think of you know because there's going to be a time couple of hundred years in the future, right? Where people are like, ah, oh, dude, why didn't they figure out that, you know, blah, blah, blah came from blue, blue, blue. And it's, it's going to be the same exact perspective that, you know, we understand the transmissibility or the movement of something, but we just didn't find that vector because it was, you know, kind of hidden out of sight. Yeah. So from fart jars to, I don't know, suggesting drinking bleach. <laughs> uh, no that's that's but let's let's look at what were the social after effects of the black plague well mixed on the one hand uh, killed two-thirds of europe's population yeah and india and china and you know and Southeast all the places Asia, yeah. on the other yeah. accelerated the demise of the feudal system and actually improved the economic lot of serfs and laborers after the 1300s. Why? Well, the disease hit a lot of rural and manual laborers especially hard, so labor became scarce. With fewer people around, wages would have to go up, because if landowners didn't offer their workers special incentives to stay, they would up and run off and work for another lord down the road. So the aristocracy then began to grant charters to communities or release peasants of traditional demands or even <gasps> pay them actual money. So the Black <laughs> Plague led to the rise of the middle class. Uh, All right. Other plague outbreaks have led to the rise of the Renaissance and a increased interest in science and learning. Yeah, yeah. And that's there is kind of a gold rush of research right now. Um, I've gushed about this before in previous episodes, but, you know, the common cold, right, Josh? We, we've been living with the common cold forever, and we had the common cold Institute, you know, in Salisbury in England in the 1960s. Please go back and listen to that episode. It's awesome. But this relationship of why should a virus that's going around from person to person cause different types and spectrum of disease based on the host and based on small differences in the pathogen when you have a constant like COVID going running pandemic like this or the plague, now all of a sudden you have a controlled, yep, semi-controlled situation where you can examine illness versus not, exposure versus not, just like you would in the lab. And it's, yeah, I know it's a little dark and gallows kind of thing, but it we're going to learn a lot about the inflammatory system, about the immune system, and about coronaviruses in general, and not just COVID-19. So yeah, this, this spurs innovation in a hurry. Which is to say that this is an awful plague that nobody wanted, but every time people kind of came together and survived at the end, humanity as a species tended to come up with some pretty impressive advancements. And this was not limited to Europe. It happened in India, where they began developing public health. It happened in Asia, where, you know, we saw the rise of masks uh, that we yeah, talked yeah. about in previous episodes. <laughs> so the advancements made in these times of disease were incredibly impressive. And I think that's an excellent place to end this particular episode of Around the world in 80 plagues. So that's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially by following links in the show notes to our Patreon, Twitter, Facebook, and other social media sites. This show is produced by me, along with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and other friends. Hi! 
And our theme music is composed by Rachel Ledger. And until next time, as always, stay at home. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> yeah, we can. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.